All right, looks like we're at time, depending on which clock you look at. We're either on time, three minutes ahead, or one minute behind. So we'll hit it in the middle and just say we're right on time. Okay, awesome. So we're going to pick up in our study of Zechariah 14. We've still got the last chapter to cover. We left off partway through the chapter, but we may back up a little bit just for the sake of wrestling with this difficult chapter. And then we'll hit into Malachi today. Probably won't finish it. That means we'll probably have a chapter, chapter and a half or so for next week. And then the second half of that class will be us getting into the new study of Ezekiel for next week. So we'll have that to look forward to. Some great language, some great prophecies, some more colorful language like the prophet Jeremiah that we've seen for our midweek services. So we have that to look forward to. But before that, we got to get through the rest of the minor prophets here. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so I know we had left off partway through Zechariah 14, but like I'd said, it is a confusing chapter. Luther himself, though, is pretty confident in his interpretation. In his commentary, he says, here in this chapter, I give up, for I'm not sure what the prophet is talking about. And so Luther himself had some wrestlings with this text. And if Luther says here in this chapter, I give up, well, hopefully we can get through. We're going to see the, some marvelous uh, pictures, even though it's going to be a little more obscure to our more literal understanding. We're kind of in apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic genre here. So we got to bring ourselves out into that, that realm here and see what the Holy Spirit through the prophet Jeremiah gives to us of the picture of the coming day of the Lord here. Just remember Zechariah, contemporary of Haggai during this time, the rebuilding of the second temple, come back from the captivity. They're not wanting to rebuild the temple Haggai comes, says, hey, get busy building the temple. Zechariah also comes, says, hey, get busy building the temple. So a common theme throughout. Zechariah is a lot longer than Haggai. We get some more obscure visions and all that. That's what we see here today. I know we left off in verse 13, but let's just back up into verse 1, just get a little bit of a running head start here. Behold, a day is coming For the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle." On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. All right, so we have this picture of the coming day of the Lord where the houses of the people of Israel 
people of Jerusalem, God's people here, more broadly speaking for us, their houses will be plundered. So these cities from all around, these pagan nations, the unbelievers coming and attacking the houses of the believers and plundering them. We'll see later on in chapter 14 that the table is going to be switched there where God's people will then plunder the pagan nations. And then, but we also have a picture of the Lord fighting on a day of battle. We saw that previously. Again, can't remember if it's in Zechariah. All the visions kind of blur together. We have like the four horses. You also have in Revelation, Christ on the white horse. So we have this triumphant language, this Lord going into battle, fighting against those nations. Then we have the picture of the Mount of Olives here. can't remember if it's Luther himself or another commentator kind of points to the um, splitting of these two, splitting from the east to the west, and then there being this valley in the middle that then the people at the middle of verse 5, it's actually back up to the beginning of verse 5, you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So here they talk about, or they bring out that this image of the splitting from east to west, and then a pathway to, for them to flee through. Okay, what Old Testament picture then are you thinking of? Exodus. Yeah, the splitting of the Red Sea and then passing through. So they bring up that language. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So the angelic beings, remember the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies here. So his armies will come. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. So this ushering in of the new heavens, this new earth, it will be unlike anything we know of in our minds. So everything that we think is necessary, the way that things just are of having light, maybe not so much cold or frost out here in California, but in the Midwest, that's the way of creation. And so not literally speaking in the fact that there won't be any light or any cold or any frost or anything like that, rather in a more poetic sense of everything you think is necessary, everything you think of just the way creation is, is a unique day, this unique creation that will be the new heavens and the new earth. But even in evening time, there will be light. So we get pictures of Christ being the light of the world. So even at evening, there is still the light of Christ shining forth. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. All right, so here we get a picture of the last day, but also get a little bit of an allusion to the cross itself. Because on that day, on Good Friday, we also kind of see a picture of the last day, don't we? We see that Christ finally winning that ultimate victory for us. And then we look forward to Christ coming on the last day. But on that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. As Christ was on the cross, what flowed out from his side? 
but the living water, flowing from the Western Sea to the Eastern Sea, so to the stretches of the earth, this saving water flowing out from Jerusalem to the nations here. Likewise, on this last day, when Christ comes back, it'll stretch from the east to the west. And it's not like if you're going to be in a jungle, you're going to miss Christ coming back. You know, you're in a basement somewhere. Oh, Christ came back. You missed it. Sorry, lost, missed your chance. No, on that day, it will be obvious to all around. It shall continue summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Not that he isn't one and his name isn't one already, but that all the people on the earth will see him as the king, the one. So every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. They will, there's no mistaking who the ultimate king is on the last day. No one's going to be able to argue before the judgment seat of God and say, mm, I don't know if you're actually the king. It will be obvious for all to see. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate, from the tower of Hanel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. All right, so this new Jerusalem this new peace that will come with the new heavens and the new earth. I can get into all the Geba and Rimon, if that's how you pronounce it even. You can look at your study note and they'll have some points there. But kind of this far reaching of it, of that, the Lord's reign on this last day. Or again, some complex imagery here, a little bit hard for us to understand. Again, as with some of the other visions that we've seen, even though we can't necessarily always get every single detail and say, that clearly represents this or that is this, we still get the general point of what the Holy Spirit is delivering to us. Are there any questions, though, on these first 10 verses? I know we had covered it some last week, but we were blazing through pretty quickly, so. All right. Verse 12, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Sorry, pastor, if you're still eating breakfast, but hopefully you're done at this point. Yeah. (laughs) I wish we already see this kind of true in some respects now even, do we not? As soon as you're born, you're starting to die. So already, for all of us, we're already starting to rot away. But for those that are unbelievers, that's their end. That rotting way is their, the end of their life. But for us, though our outer self perishes, we don't die in that respect. That is not our end. That is not that final judgment for us. For we will be made alive. Even in our flesh, our flesh will be brought back together, resurrected on that last day. So even the flesh that does perish will be restored 
on that last day for us. Yes, for those who are unbelievers, this will be their end. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them. I believe this is the new material. You know, because I think we ended with a very great picture, verse 12, and then, you know, the Lord be with you and sent you on your way. So, picking up in the new material here on verse 13. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. So this great panic that comes that the Lord inflicts on his people, that even those that, you know, with one hand seize their neighbor, with the other hand, you know, they've got a club and beating their other neighbor. So this great panic, great confusion. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. So Judah joining with Jerusalem, joining forces, the whole people of God joining together on this last day. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. So that same plague of verse 12 will then extend to the, to the soldiers, their horses, their mules, all their, all their means of wealth and power, that same curse will fall upon their livestock and their wealth and their might. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. All right, so everyone who survives, we got Again, pull our minds, stretch them a little bit here. This remnant, those who believe, those who remain as the people of God, those that remain steadfast even until the end here, those people in this new heavens and the new earth will go up to the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. So the Feast of Booths, we see that pop up randomly in the New Testament, especially in, I believe it's in John He talks about that, makes mention of it multiple times, of them going up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And so each year around the time of the harvest, they would come to Jerusalem, stay in these little makeshift tents, these little tabernacles. It was a time of celebration to rejoice and give thanks to God for the harvest, but also to to be a reminder of their time in the wilderness, where the Lord does, did dwell with them in the tents, in the tabernacles, which then paints new light on John 1, 1 or John 1, the Lord, or he came, became flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, the Lord tenting with his people here on earth. So here we get a picture of that last day when we go and keep the Feast of Booths, we come to the one who came to earth, dwelt among us. We come and keep that Feast of Booths. We come and dwell with the one who has dwelt among us. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. 
All right, so here we get a picture of something that's just not even possible. Because on that day, you know, when the last day comes, it's not like there's going to be unbelievers to kind of dwell in here in the new heavens and the new earth. And they're going to say, hmm, we don't think we want to go up and keep the Feast of Booths here. But you show in during this time, if they come up or if they remain in that unbelief, if they do not recognize the king as the king, there's no rain. That is, they perish. So we see that with the parable of the sower and the seeds. You get the thorns rising up, you know, choking them out and everything. Same type of imagery used here of no rain. If there's no rain, you perish. Go back to verse 12 and see more graphic imagery of perishing here. So there's no rain that's being cut off from the people of God. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So you either recognize the Lord as Lord, or you're his enemy and you perish. Simple as that. There's no middle ground. There's no kind of sitting on the fence, being Sweden here or something. Toting both sides. You either keep the Feast of Booths, recognize the Lord, or you are his enemy, you perish. Or in the language here, used here, no rain, this plague, this rotting away will occur. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. All right, so on that last day, every single aspect of this new creation will be to the Lord. Even the smallest detail down to the bells will be inscribed on there, holy to the Lord. All the pots, all the bowls will be used to the Lord. This complete cleansing, this complete purification of the new heavens and the new earth here that there may no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So there we get to a little bit of a picture to the cleansing of the temple. Remember the Lord coming into the temple to cleanse it. They made it a house of trade. The house of the Lord had become nothing more than this marketplace here. So on that day, there shall no longer be a traitor. All right, and then that's the end of Zechariah here. Any questions on that? I know it's a little bit of a complex chapter, and so, yeah. There was talk about uh, transaction earlier, about, you know, making, just go making the sacrifices, and Mm -hmm. so, like, no longer be a traitor in that sense either, like I'm trading this pious act for my salvation, Mm. I don't know if there kind of makes me think of that. Yeah, I think that's a worthy kind of reflection and 
devotional aspect of that. They've been on that last... Yeah. I mean, I think here in this context, he's speaking more towards the more literal aspect of that, but yeah. And we'll see more of that here in Malachi, this trading and these sacrifices and how the priests completely destroy that system and turn it into a wicked thing. Any other thoughts, questions? All right, so then we're going to move on to Malachi, last book for us. So we get going to do some of the introductory material here, looking at the timeline at the top, page 1543. So remember, we have 516 is when that second temple is completed. So the people do get their act together, and they do complete it. Walls of Jerusalem restored 445. So then they date the writing of Malachi around 430. So you've got, what, 86 years or so since the completion of the second temple to now Malachi writing. And we'll see as he writes, it didn't take long for the people of God, the priests, to corrupt the system again. And so we'll see Malachi chastising the people for that. That's important stuff on the dating See, Luther, what he has to say, we'll look, won't read all of it, uh, looking at the third paragraph, though, where he starts beyond. Beyond that, he also denounces his, his people severely because they do not give the priests their tithes and other sacrifices. Even when they gave them, they did it faithlessly. Sick and blemished sheep, for example, whatever they did not want themselves had to be good enough for the poor priests and preachers. This is the way it usually goes. Those who are true preachers of the word of God must suffer hunger and privation, while false teachers must always have their fill. To be sure, the priests, too, are denounced along with the offerings because they accepted those offerings and sacrificed them. Such was the work of dear uh, Sir Avarice. But God here declares that he is greatly displeased with this. He calls such faithlessness and wickedness an offense against himself. On account of it, God threatens to leave them and to take the Gentiles as his people. Afterward, he denounces the priests, particularly because they falsified the word of God and taught it faithlessly and thereby deceived many, and because they abused their priestly office by not rebuking those who offered blemished things or were otherwise unrighteous, and by praising them instead and calling them righteous, just to gain contributions and profit from them. In this way, avarice and concern for the belly have always injured the word and worship of God. They always turn preachers into hypocrites. Right, And then the challenges for the readers. The identity of the author, Malachi literally just means my messenger, and the prophet's identity is never revealed. Say so he was likely a member of the Levitical priesthood who witnessed the corruption and indifference, and indifference he rebukes throughout the book. All right, so whether or not Malachi itself is his personal name or the title given to him, it's uncertain. So the specific identity of the author, 
they take it as not being known necessarily. But I mean, all throughout the Minor Prophets, we see the names of the prophets having a very specific meaning. My Hebrew's rusty, so I can't just pull out some of them. But we saw that with the... Oh, what were some of them? I'd have to go digging back. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, you do see that with the names given to the people of God having a specific meaning. So it could be that his name was actually Malachi, being my messenger, or if it was the title given to him. Not quite certain there. Then blessings. This one's going to be important as we look at the text of Malachi and look at it within the context of our own lives as well. As you read Malachi, consider and answer his questions honestly in view of the Lord's commands and promises and in view of your life. The fire of his teaching will sear the dross of your indifference and bring forth tears of sincere repentance. Treasure most of all his precious word about the appearance of Jesus, our Savior, the messenger of a better covenant. All right, so throughout Malachi, we're going to see these questions being asked by the people that are pretty obvious in our minds, but then we should pause, think about how we ask those same questions kind of in our own lives of the Lord. This will all make sense once we get into the text of Malachi, but any questions on the kind of the introductory materials, the context of when Malachi is being written? All right. 1 verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? All right, so here we get that first question. So the Lord, he says, I have loved you. We've seen that throughout the Minor Prophets. We saw that in the first midweek series with Jeremiah, the husband and wife language, the Lord being faithful, the people of God being unfaithful. And so the Lord has said, hey, I have loved you. Love doesn't just mean some language of speaking I love you, but love also includes actions. And so the love of God has shown itself in creation, the crossing of the Red Sea, the Exodus, all these things, all throughout history. We've seen the Lord over and over proving his love for his people, his faithfulness to them. And then the people of God have the nerve to say, how have you loved us? All right. Have you forgotten any of these events? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. All right, so I think it's worthwhile for us to look down at the study note 1 verse 2 and then read through these few study notes to clear up some misconceptions that may come up with the Lord saying that he's hated Esau, what that's about. So starting with the first note, 1 verse 2, I have loved you. God wanted Israel to believe this basic truth. How have you loved us? Israel challenged God's claim with a confrontational question. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? It's a rhetorical question. So Esau, uh, God introduced the names of Esau, which from him comes Edom, 
and Jacob comes people of Israel, twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Since they were twins, one might suppose equal treatment. I have loved Jacob. Again, the Lord affirmed his love for Jacob, that is Israel, just as Rebekah loved her, her son Jacob, but Isaac loved Esau. And for Esau I have hated, a surprisingly strange statement. God's love and care for all people and all creation is affirmed throughout Scripture. He gives some scriptural quotes there. God's hatred of Esau must be understood in light of what Jesus said about hating one's own father and mother and wife and children in Luke 14. Such hatred refers to the choices a person must make between Jesus and loved ones. So God showed hatred for Esau when he chose the older Esau to serve the younger Jacob. Prophecies around the time, uh, prophecies around the time of the Judean exile are especially condemning of the Edomites. All right, so this language of hating is not so much this hatred, but rather a choice. His love for Jacob, his choice of Jacob to be his people, as opposed to the people or Esau, and then from him flows the Edomites. So in the study note, they bring up the quotation of Luke 14 of hating one's own father and mother. All right, you don't necessarily just, oh, one day I think I'm going to decide to hate my parents or something. It's not what the Lord is speaking of, but rather, are you going to follow the Lord or are you going to follow your parents, even your children, the ways of this world? Where are you going to follow? Are you going to pick up your cross and follow Christ? Even if that means having to choose Christ over your own family, your own relationships, of which is greater importance. Picking up your cross and following the Lord. Being willing to forsake all other things for the sake of following Christ and being faithful unto him. So does that clear up a little bit of the, the Esau I've hated? So it's the Lord choosing Jacob over Esau here. Uh, isn't that because Esau continuously made choices against his parents? He married uh, the people around him when his mom and dad told him not to. And the other thing, so this is a, a basis of what he's saying. Hey, every choice he made was against his parents. Mm. Yeah, I think, I don't know if that's exactly. Mm. I mean, Esau, his yeah. whole life is... is, is He's rebelling against mm-hmm. everything. He yeah. doesn't even want, technically, God because he doesn't want his birthright. Mm-hmm. He he doesn't he doesn't care for anything. I mean, there's nothing in his character that shows he cares. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where we see the Lord saying here. You know, I've laid waste his hill country, left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So this handing over of this. And this laying waste of their yeah, of their country throughout. When they came from the when they come into the promised lands, 
the Edomites are attacking their, the, technically their brother, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that would be flown back to the people of Israel. Yeah. Yeah, so again, we have this distinct choice here, this. We saw that at the end of Zechariah. You know, you either keep the Feast of Booths, follow the Lord, or you're enemies of him. There's this one side or the other here. So we have from Esau flows the Edomites, flows this, the wicked people that continue to fight against Jacob or Israel following from him. Verse 4, if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So he's just reminding them, yeah, you can keep rebuilding, but if you continue to be my enemies... I'll just keep tearing it down again, over and over. So keep wearing yourself out. You know, you can waste all your money building this back up. At the end of the day, you are a wicked country. You have kindled the anger of the Lord. And so he will continue to be angry with you and tearing down what you build up. And even the own, the own eyes of the people of Israel that are saying, you know, how have you loved us? They'll see all this take place. And they'll say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So again, he'll show his action against the enemies of Israel all throughout history. And they have been witnesses and will continue to be witnesses of this. So their idiotic question of how have you loved us is, Lord answers it. I've shown it all throughout. You'll continue to keep seeing it. Before your very eyes, you will see this. And so, why would you ask? I mean, we ourselves ask that. I mean, all throughout our lives, especially in difficult situations, come to the Lord. How have you loved us? In the throes of the sorrows of this life, we turn to the Lord with that with that attitude sometimes, and we quickly lose sight of all the times that the Lord has loved us, has sustained us. And so it's a great mental rep in the midst of those things when we start to be angry with God of, God, what have you done for me ever? To sit back, take a step back, and to realize all the blessings that he has given to you all throughout your life, down to your family, down to your very own life, that he sustained your life. If it weren't for his care, you wouldn't even be here at this moment. And so to take that step back and to, in those times where you would ask the Lord, how have you loved us, to remind yourself and to start by giving thanks to the Lord, all that he has done, and then how quickly then your attitude starts to change as you then realize all the ways that the Lord has loved us, what he has given us all throughout our life. And we'll continue to do before our very eyes. And we pray that we would recognize that, even though he continues to give those good things to us, even without our prayers, our daily bread. We pray that we would 
come to recognize that and to give thanksgiving to God for all those good gifts that he does give to us. Any thoughts, questions? So they'll keep asking some questions of the Lord, and he'll keep answering them. Verse 6, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? This is the Lord speaking here. So if I am then a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? All right, he's going to lay it out pretty clearly of how they have despised his name and what that entails here. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present to present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Just a great line here. So we'll get to that as we go through this. So the Lord is saying, you have despised my name. And so we have this very close connection of despising the name And then what does he then give as evidence of the despising of his name? All of the sacrifices. So they come, bring their decrepit little lambs that, you know, have a broken leg, maybe are blind in one eye, maybe 14 years old and near death or something. They'll say, yeah, we'll we'll bring this before the Lord as a great sacrifice. And Lord is saying... Would you present that to your governor? Go, present that to him, see how he likes it. Equivalent of our day, you know, would you use that kind of mouth to your, with your mother type of thing? You want to see how that same language flies if you go to your mom? She'll put you into shape real quick. Yeah, soap in the mouth, big bar of soap or soapy rag or something. So he's saying, yeah, okay, so... If this wouldn't fly with your earthly rulers, your earthly governors, of giving these weak animals as sacrifices to them, why do you think it's a good thing to give it to the Lord, the creator of all things, the one who has redeemed you? Is that really how you should bring your sacrifices? What sacrifices you should bring to him? I just love this back and forth question, or this going further and further on in the questioning of, are you despised? How have we despised you? Offering polluted foods. How have we polluted it? It's like, okay, do you guys not get it? Do you guys not get the point of how you have despised me? Do you want to keep arguing and try to nuance every single thing of, well, what about the polluting? How have we polluted it? All right. It just shows our own human nature of how we try to weasel our way out of it. But so we have this great connection of the despising of the name, and then the sacrifices, so the worship. So the close link between the two, despising the Lord by giving the very least these just blind animals. And so we see the 
I mean, just the nature of this sin that they've, even just within these, was it 86 years or something? They had the new temple. It's great. We're going to get everything right. Everything's going to be good. And within 80 something years, they're back to this. And they're so far down this wicked path where they've even lost sight of that their own actions are wicked, that they have despised the name of the Lord. So as you go further and further on to sin, the sin starts to look less like a sin, doesn't it? And so they've already gotten so far into this path where they don't even see their actions of giving these blind animals as sacrifices as being wicked in the sight of the Lord, not being right and proper sacrifices. So it's already been going on for some time, it seems like, that they've gotten so far off that they've lost sight of what a right and proper sacrifice is. So far into that sin that they've been completely blinded to it and no longer see it as a sin. Which we warn about in our own lives of that we would not continue on in that sin because the more and more you sin, the less it starts to look like a sin. And that's when you really worry. Yes, you may continue to sin over and over, but you continue to recognize it as a sin, continue to confess it to the Lord, receive his holy absolution, desire to do better, though you may still fall into that sin again. But then as soon as you start to keep on sinning and sinning, and you start to... Mm, I don't think I actually need that to confess that one. That one's not that bad of a sin. You know, it's maybe not a blind animal, but maybe it's just a little tiny sin. It's, that's okay. Further and further on you go. How have we despised you, Lord? How have we sinned against you? Well, you sinned against me in this way. What, what do you mean we've polluted you in that way? What do you, how does that work? So we see the nature of this progression and this warning against it even in our own lives, that we would not become blinded as they were to their own sacrifices here. So we have him saying, go to the governor, present this same blind animal to him and see how, see how he treats you. Will he accept it and show you favor? It says the Lord of hosts, verse 9, And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Well, no. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. So the Lord's pretty, pretty vivid here. He says it would have been better that you would even shut the doors of these temple, this temple here than not offer these wicked sacrifices that you thought were pleasing, but that are not pleasing at all to me. It would have been better that the doors would have been shut than for you to continue on in this wickedness. He says that it might not kindle fire On my altar, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. 
those stark words of judgment here against, against his people that, again, it would have been better just to not go and bring these half-hearted sacrifices, these blind animals to the Lord and to kindle his anger against them. Better just not to do it at all. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. All right, so from the rising of the sun to its setting, so the entire duration of the days, from the rising to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. So not just in Jerusalem, but among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. All right, so here ultimately we see Christ himself being that pure offering for us, that pure sacrifice that is given. My name will be great among the nations. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. Right, so they've gotten these sacrifices, some by violence, so they've oppressed the poor, done these other things to attain these sacrificed animals, or the animals that they do have are the lame sick, these weak animals. So either they get it by violence or they give their just kind of weak, weak animals to the Lord. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. All right, so those who have the means even to give a proper animal, one that is not blemished. They have an unblemished lamb here ready to sacrifice, but they hold that one back. So it's not even as though they only have sick animals to give as sacrifices, that that's the best they have to offer, much like the widow giving the widow's mite. That's all she had. That was the best she had to offer. I know they have much more means, but they hold that back. They still may give in greater abundance, but it's not as the widow gives. They give out of their abundance, but only yet a fraction, and they hold back from the Lord instead of giving to him what is his. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Which is interesting that in the nation of Israel, in the people of God, was the name of the Lord feared. 
Were they honoring him, loving him, fearing him, trusting him? At this time, no. They were giving the blemished animals. But among the nations, among the other nations, the Gentiles, my name will be feared. So if my own people of God here, my chosen people, aren't faithful, let's see how these other nations come, and they will be faithful. They will fear me and give that right fear that is due my name. So again, already here in the Old Testament, we see a picture of salvation coming to the nations, to the Gentiles, and not just the specific people of Israel here. All right, any questions on chapter 1? It's kind of a false chapter break, so we're going to continue on kind of mid-argument here, but I'll pause here if we have questions. All right. So he's already attacked the priests. That's what this previous section has mainly been about, attacking them. They know better. Again, they've only been priests in this new temple for a couple generations at this point. They know what the Lord has said. They probably still have their grandparents or whatever still alive from the time of Zechariah, hearing all this. They know what they are supposed to do. They know better, and yet they've done all these wicked things in the sight of the Lord. And he continues on in chapter 2. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. So again, it's not enough simply to listen and to hear it, hear what the word, the command of the Lord is, but taking it to heart, to read, mark, learn, inwardly digest it, to take it to heart, to put it into action. If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, then I will send the curse upon your land, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. All right, so here we get some great imagery, again, penned by the Holy Spirit in verse 3. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. (laughs) I don't think we can preach that way nowadays, but this is the Lord himself speaking to them. So, if the Lord says if it's good enough for him, I guess it's good enough for us. Maybe Luther was onto something with this more direct language. You know, he's a little more colorful than we would sometimes be. Follows in the path of the, of the Lord here in Malachi, spreading dung on their faces. Which the study note makes a good, first off, the, in study note for 2 verse 3, I think this is the most obvious study note about halfway through that study note. Spreading dung on their faces is God's way of expressing disdain for the, these priests. Thank you, study note, for clarifying. I thought he really loved what the priests were doing. And he was just doing this as a great thanks to them. You know, good job, good and faithful servant. Here's some dung on your face. I mean, okay. Good clarification, though, in case anyone was confused by that. 
But then the next part of the taken away, uh, in the citing Exodus 29:14, the Lord ordered that this dung be burned outside the camp. So it was taken from the entrails of the sacrificed animals and then taken away and burned outside of the camp. So the Lord is pretty much marking these priests here, spreading that on them. What's insinuation? They're going to be cast out of the camp. Just like what would happen with the entrails of the sacrificed animals, so too with you. You've been marked, and now you will be cast out from the camp of God, from the people of God. They will be cast out into that, into that wilderness out there. So being marked for this casting away. I just love this language. I love the minor prophets. You just don't always get this. In the New Testament, they're a little, don't, don't quite speak the same way. So it's fun going through the minor prophets. You get some of this great language. Even through the prophets themselves with Ezekiel, we'll get a lot of that language too. We've got a hand up here, Chris. I don't know. They may, yeah. In the study note on 2 3, it says mm-hmm. the priest's children suffered for the sins of their fathers. Was mm-hmm. that for the false teachings that, they're, mm-hmm. that the priest taught them falsely? Is that why they suffered? Let me see what the scripture quotation there. I'm wondering. First Samuel 2. I'm curious what they're citing there. And we see that in Exodus, with, um, even in your small catechism for the close of the commandments. Of, you know, for those who love him, he'll bless for those who don't. Uh, let's see. 2.27-36. 2, Lord rejects Eli's household. Send to him, thus says the Lord. Sorry, I'm skimming through this real quick. All right, so a similar type of situation here. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then he continues on from there. And we see this just generally speaking as a general truth. The children suffer for the sins of their parents. And we see that even today. Of the children suffer... If the parents do something wicked, the children themselves are the ones that often suffer the most in those situations. 
So likewise, the children here of the priests, the priest goes through, he teaches wickedly, leads you to do all these wicked things in the sight of the Lord. Well, you're brought up in that way. You too are going to go that way. And so the anger of the Lord is still kindled upon you as well for that. Does that kind of answer your question? Or, okay. All right, any questions on the great imagery of verse 3? There's been a couple of those fun, fun verses in the Minor Prophets. This is another one of those. Verse 3 to keep in mind. Probably not a confirmation verse that we'll see anytime soon. But So shall you know, verse 4, that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. So Levi being the priestly tribe here. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. All right, so how have they failed here in comparison to Levi in the priestly office before them? There was true instruction, a wrong found on, their li- on his lips, he walked in peace and uprightness, and he even turned many away from iniquity. So corrected those who were going astray, brought them back on that correct path. But now... The priests themselves are the ones that are not turning people away from the iniquity, but turning them towards the iniquity, leading them onto that path of iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. So the Shamar language, to guard, watch, keep, observe, all kind of thrown into there. So they should guard knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth, For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So the priests themselves are held to a higher standard here. They know better. They are there to turn people away from the iniquity, to guard that knowledge, to keep that knowledge, use their lips for uprightness. Rather, they have turned people away and caused many to stumble. And so the Lord is holding them to the high standard. Likewise today with pastors. He holds those pastors to a higher standard. If they cause many to go astray with their false teachings... They're held accountable for that. It says, I will make you despised and abased as much as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. So the partiality, I think the study note makes mention of that. 
Another of the priest's sins was showing favor in their teaching to one group of people, perhaps to the rich. All right, so you, you have a certain group of people that are bigger donors or something. They tell you, hey, we don't like this way of your preaching. All right, then the pastor turns and to suit that, to keep the money flowing in, to fill his own pockets in, quickly turns that way. Thankfully, we don't have that here. We have a very faithful pastor. But, I mean, we see that with some of those, I mean, you hear stories all the time of those big box churches or something, of even just our own sinful human nature. We like to show partiality. We like to keep it, keep it on the easy path. Yeah. This passage makes me think, too, of the commandment, honor your father and mother, and your mm-hmm. days will be long on the earth, and this will be a blessing to your descendants. Mm-hmm. And also the instruction of the fathers to, as they will go along, to teach their children, just like in daily life and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. In, in retrospect, you realize how important that is. Yeah, exactly. All right, so complete time got away from me here. So we'll have to stop there. Didn't get finished as much as we thought, but we'll pick up there next week. means we'll probably get through the rest of Malachi and maybe get some of the introductory material of Ezekiel next week. That Lord be with you.